0: You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Caleb Wilkinson. We're going to continue in making making progress in the book of Judges this morning. We are in chapter 14, in scene 2 of the story... Of Samson, the very last judge in the book. And if you remember from last week, Samson's distinct in several ways, none of which are his physical appearance or his mighty strength. He doesn't look like Rambo. Okay, Samson's story is different because it's as bad as it's ever been in Israel. They've been oppressed for 40 years years that's a complete generation and worse than that no one's crying out for deliverance from their oppressors no one's asking for rescue if you remember in the cycle of judges before God raises up each judge the people cry out for rescue they cry out for help but here no one's crying out anymore Now, as we dive into this next scene of Samson's life, it's important also to remember that we're not meant to get preoccupied with Samson, the judge. We'll miss it if we get preoccupied with him. Our focus is to be on the God who saves. Okay, that's what this story is going to be about. That's what the book of Judges is about. That's what the whole Bible is about, the God who saves. So we focus on God in this chapter. What we're going to see is that... Our God is more like a judo master than he is a heavyweight boxing champion. Okay, I am not versed or am I good at either of these fighting art forms, but in a college I went to, they were required core classes. And so I learned a little bit of the fundamentals of each, and I at least got to see that there are some big differences. So boxing is difficult, but it's pretty clear. You know, in boxing, you're basically trying to get yourself in a position where you can strike your opponent in the face or in the body, and you're trying to keep your opponent from doing the same to you. Okay, so every time you, you get a strike, you get a point, and every time they get one on you, they get a point. And at the end of 10 three-minute rounds, whoever has the most points wins, if it lasts that long and someone doesn't get KO'd or knocked out first. Okay, so it's very challenging. It's difficult. But it's pretty direct, it's pretty clear. Not so with Judah. Not so with Judo. Fundamental to Judo is this gentle art of redirection. Okay, so if someone's coming at you, your opponent's coming at you in judo, you don't try to just strike them, you do something more like sidestep and try to add to their force to kind of carry them forward so that you can gain. Control. Okay, in judo, the way to win is not by points, it's by gaining control. And the way to accomplish this is often through the art of redirection. Okay, that's why I say our God is more like a judo master than a heavyweight boxer. Because the main thing we're going to see in chapter 14 is that the Lord uses his people's misdirection to send us in his direction. The Lord uses his people's misdirection to send them in his direction. In chapter 14, what we're going to see is we're going to see our misdirection first, and then we'll see his gracious redirection. And for whatever reason, the Lord thinks we need to know this today, because that's why he's given us chapter 14 this morning. He uses our misdirection to send us in his direction. So let's jump into the text. I'm going to begin in chapter 13, verse 24. Just follow along with me. This is God's word to you and to me. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him and Mahanadan... Between Zorah and Ashtael. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Right away, this is meant to shock us. It certainly shocked his parents. After this grand announcement in chapter 13 of this miraculous deliverer, the first thing Samson does is go down to Timna, probably only a few miles away from where he lives, and instead of spying out how to overthrow the enemy, Or start fighting with their oppressors. He wants to marry one. His parents must be bewildered, okay? Instead of opposing their oppressors, it seems their son rather likes them, especially their women, okay? He wants to marry one. They must be be staying up late at night. What is going on? He wants to marry one of them? Okay, this is a big big problem. God had forbidden his people from marrying foreign woman, and this wasn't because God is anti-interracial marriage. Um, We heard uh, earlier, several books earlier in the Bible, you see Moses marrying a non-Israelite woman with no critique, and it's because she is a worshiper of Yahweh. So this wasn't a racial issue at all. It was a religious issue. Marrying foreign woman and that day meant the, 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 the path to worshiping foreign gods. The, the deep, intimate, binding nature of marriage causes spouses to merge their allegiances. And so if we marry someone who doesn't treasure what we treasure, doesn't treasure God, what will end up happening is we slowly treasure God less and less as we l- learn to treasure what they treasure more and more. But the point here is not about marriage so much. The point here is that Samson isn't looking to fulfill his role to overthrow the Philistines. Okay? He's looking to enjoy them, to join them, to intermarry with them. So, so his parents protest. They see, the, they see the problem, but Samson doesn't. And he's not willing to listen to them either. He tells them, get her for me. For she is right in my eyes. Okay, this is wrong on all sorts of fronts. His heart's filled with lust for this woman. He's talking about her like she's an object. He's going to keep talking about her like that. Like he's got a right to her. Okay, Samson is sensual. He's impulsive. He's led by his senses. He, you'll notice this reputation with, with Samson. He saw. He saw. He must have, because it 's right in his own eyes, and then he takes, he demands and he takes he 's impulsive he 's also unteachable okay this this uh, dialogue with his parents probably doesn 't startle us like it should it, it does, doesn 't startle us like it did the original reader, because the father in those days was over a child 's decisions, including. Who they married. So, what this is showing us is that Samson's highly prideful. He's highly unteachable. Okay? He's unteachable, but but really, this is just reflective of an even deeper problem. Okay, the real problem isn't Samson, it's Israel. It's God's people. She is right in my eyes, isn't Samson's personal philosophy to life. It's the approach to life that all Israel has adopted. Okay? This is the repeated line in the book of Judges. There was no king. Everyone, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Okay, so Samson just reflects Israel's fallen spiritual state. With, With Samson, we see all of Israel summarized in one man. Okay? Israel is impulsive, Israel is unteachable. Okay, they've, they're completely enmeshed with the Philistines. They're looking exactly like the people around them. Okay, they're on the brink of extinction as a distinct nation. They've, they've become almost completely dissolved. Samson seemed to think nothing of marrying a Philistine woman because living with Philistines had sort of become, well, normal, peaceful, There's no resistance to their occupation anymore. That's why no one's crying out for deliverance. This is a problem. This is the problem in this chapter. This this miraculous deliverer is acting the same way as Israel. He doesn't want to overthrow God's enemies. He wants to cuddle up to them. He wants to marry one. He's a Philistine lover, not a Philistine fighter but there's way more going on than meets our eye okay god's got a secret and he's about to let us in on this secret okay in verse four his father and mother did not know that it was from the lord for he was seeking an opportunity against the philistines at that time the philistines ruled over israel Okay, so God's got a secret. Samson doesn't know it. His parents don't know it. Israel doesn't know it. But he lets us in on this secret here. Samson's wild misdirection is from the Lord. Why? For he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Okay, the Lord is up to something. He uses his people's misdirection to send them in his direction. Okay, the important thing to see now is that Samson ultimately isn't governing himself here completely. He thinks he is. He is impulsive. He is unteachable. But this isn't a war tactic or a, or a, a deliverance strategy that he's undergoing when he's trying to marry the Philistine. He's being faithless and rebellious, and the Lord is going to steer this rebellion to accomplish something he loves. He's going to use Samson's misdirection to send his people in his direction. We're going to get to that, but before we do, more misdirection. Okay, verse 5. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, And they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. Okay, so more problems. His, His parents apparently give in, and they go down to vineyards of all places. Uh, Remember, Samson's a Nazarite. He's consecrated to the Lord, and part of that uh, vow was that he would abstain from alcohol and wine, that he would not touch dead bodies, and that he would not cut his hair. So, why would he be going to vineyards? Like, what do you do in a vineyard? Okay, you get it? Okay, more Misdirection. Okay, but while he's going the wrong way, this crazy thing happens. A lion, a roaring lion, comes out at him, and he doesn't have anything to fend it off with. But the spirit of God rushes on him, and with his bare hands, he wraps up a lion like a baby lamb, like like a stuffed animal. Okay, this is supposed to shock us. There's nothing in the story up to now that foreshadows. This, it's supposed to surprise the reader. A lion is coming. And listen, Samson doesn't have anything in his hands to fight it off with. What's going to happen? Okay, this, this, this doesn't shock us probably because we've been conditioned to see Samson as that WWF action figure like we saw last week. But this is meant to be remarkable. It's meant to stop us in our tracks and say, wow, wow. The Spirit of God is powerful. He did this through Samson. And if it stops us, it should stop Samson, shouldn't it? Shouldn't it remind him of his grand calling? And maybe show him he's actually got the power of the Spirit to help him accomplish what his life mission is supposed to be? Okay, but, But what does Samson do? He doesn't stop. He doesn't even tell anyone. He certainly doesn't go back to the temple to be cleansed like he should have. He, he doesn't do any of that. What's, what's he do? Verse 7 says, He went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. Okay, he just moves right past this remarkable thing, past the fact that he has the spirit as his strength, and he moves right down into his weakness. Like immediately he goes after this girl he loves to look at. He's ruled by his passion for her. More misdirection and still more to come. Look at verse 8 with me. And after some days he returned to take her and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Okay, he's a Nazarite; He shouldn't be touching lion carcass. He certainly shouldn't be giving honey to his parents without telling them where it came from, making them unclean but but you keep seeing he's impulsive he's being ruled by his appetites he's just doing whatever he wants okay misdirection after misdirection after misdirection let's let's see what happens next starting in verse 10 his father went down to the woman and samson prepared a feast there for so the young men used to do as soon as the people saw him they brought 30 companions to be with him and samson said to them let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and, and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you will give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You don't love me. You've put a riddle to my people and you've not told me what it is and he said to her behold I've not told my father and my mother and shall I tell you she wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted and on the seventh day he told her because she pressed him hard then she told the riddle to her people and the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down what is sweeter than honey what is stronger than a lion and he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Just a comment on that last line. God, in the Bible, we often get something reported. It's, it's not prescribed by God. It's, it's just being reported, okay? That's not God's ideal for how to talk about your wife. He's, he's objectifying her, okay? This isn't God's ideal. He's just continuing to objectify her. So not approved. By God, but again, more misdirection. This this Nazarite who's forbidden to drink is now throwing a drinking party with the enemy. Okay, and he's trying to be sly and rip them off. Get the finest wardrobe in the land. Maybe show off his wardrobe. Okay, why hasn't he told anyone about the lion yet? Maybe it's so that he can have the power of this riddle. No one's going to figure it out. He can show the superiority of his wits. And maybe actually after they don't get it, they have to ask him, how did you think of something so clever? Well, just so happens I was walking by and a lot, you know, he gets to tell the story, kind of brag on himself, maybe show some other superiority. We really don't know exactly, but one thing's clear is that this marriage thing with the Philistine really won't work, even though he thought it was right in his eyes, okay? It's clear that her loyalties are to her people, especially herself and the safety of her parents, not to Samson, okay? But Samson can't think very rationally when confronted by the girl. He's got to have. So he tells her his secret and he loses his game. But here's the point so far. Samson's wildly misdirected. He's ruled by his lust and appetite. He doesn't care about what God's calling him to do. It doesn't even seem like he tries. He does what's right in his eyes. He sees he wants, and he demands. This is just a way to describe idolatry. Okay, I see something I want, even something inherently good, see something I want, I demand it, I say I must have that, and then I go try to take it. Before we get too far down the road looking down at Samson, what we need to do is we need to admit that Samson isn't just reflecting the hearts of the Israelites here. He's He's reflecting our hearts. Okay, we, we do the same thing with money and with achievement and with comfort and with ease. We do this with sex and our reputations and with our jobs and family. Okay, we see something attractive we want and then we demand it. We say, I must have that to be at peace. I must have that to be content and then we do whatever it takes to get it, often at great pain to ourselves and to those around us, okay? We're prone to be just as misdirected as Samson, to do what's right in our own eyes, okay? Every human being has been. This was the original problem in the garden with Adam and Eve, okay? God told Adam and Eve, you can eat of every tree in the garden, but not the fruit of this one tree, but The serpent told them this. He said, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay, so this is the first lie. You won't die. In fact, your eyes will be opened. And you'll know what's right without reference to God. You won't need God to figure out what's right anymore. Okay, so... So then what the woman did is when she saw that the tree was good for food and listened, that it was a delight to her eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate, okay? Adam and Eve were led by their eyes, and everyone ever since has fallen under the same spell. Romans 1 says this about mankind. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, okay, things we can see with our eyes. Okay, this is just another way to say the problem with all of us is that what we do is what's right in our own eyes. So if you're with me here, if, you're, if you see that we're misdirected, sinners who often love other things more than God, who trust in what we can see rather than what we can't see, who, who, who follow our eyes and our appetites. Or, or if you just see that we're ones who've made bad choice after bad choice. If, if you're saying that you're more like Samson than you are different from him, then we're right where God wants us to be. And we should be sitting on the edge of our seats asking, how is God going to respond here? The last two verses show us that God uses his people's misdirection to send them in his direction. Okay, he redirects our misdirection. Okay, let's, let's read about his redirection in verse 19 and 20. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Askelon, and struck down 30 men of the town, and took their spoil, and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. And Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. Okay, so Samson is mad now. He wasn't going to fight the Philistines. He was a Philistine lover, not a Philistine fighter, but now he's provoked sort of like he was with the lion, okay? More than being a Philistine lover, Samson is, well, a Samson lover. Okay? He loves himself and so he will pay his debts at no personal loss to himself. He does whatever's right for him. He's not an initiating leader who serves others he just responds impulsively when provoked to serve himself okay and now he's angry because he didn't get what he wanted and he's going to ensure that the joke is on the Philistines here so he goes down and he kills 30 men and strips them of their garments strips them of their outer garments and their undergarments leaving 30 men dead naked and dead not so that he can overthrow God's enemies, but so that he can protect himself from personal loss. Okay, this is brutal. This is selfish. But listen, if we see this brutal incident mainly as a result of Samson's rage, we miss the climax of the whole story here. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. The Spirit of God drove him to Ascalon. This event was steered and empowered by the Spirit. This is the occasion that the Lord was seeking. Back in verse 4, remember, we got in on that secret that Samson's misdirection was from God for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Well, now this secret is coming out into the open. God wants to start a fight. And if his people won't fight against their oppressors, if they'll let it be, he'll pick a fight for them. Okay, so we're not dealing mainly with Samson's temper, but the Spirit's power. Not simply to use one man against 30 and have him win, have him strike down 30 men deep in Philistine territory. But the Spirit's gracious redirecting power to use a flawed, weak, misdirected man like Samson and like you and like me, to accomplish his mission. Okay, this is amazing. Our God can use what he hates to accomplish what he loves. He uses his people's misdirection to send us in his direction. What is his direction? What's God trying to accomplish here? It's not just to start a random fight. It's to save Israel from extinction, from dissolving into an idol-worshipping people where there's only death and destruction. Okay? He wants to save them. Real life is in relationship with him. Real life doesn't come from what we think will make us happy. The giver of life wants a people to walk with, to be friends with, to share all his beauty and goodness with. So the direction he's sending them is back to himself, where they always belonged, but where they had deserted to their own detriment okay God uses his people's misdirection to send them in his direction back to himself remember the problem is that no one cared about God anymore no one cared about the giver of life they were fine being canonized 40 years and no one was crying out for rescue or for help God sets aside Samson to change this, but he doesn't care either. He doesn't have a stomach to fight. He doesn't want to be a judge, but God's going to use him to deliver anyway. For Samson and his people's own good and for God's glory, he'll use what he hates in Samson, his wild misdirection, to accomplish what he loves and send them back to his direction, back to himself. And we get just a little hint on how he's going to do this. Okay, This last verse is super important to the plot development. And Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. Can okay, we end the chapter, and Samson doesn't know this yet. He goes back to his parents' house thinking everything's solved, everything's groovy. But the woman he likes, the woman all along that he must have, he's got to have, has been given away. And if you thought... His response to losing this bet about the garments was overreactionary. Well, you guys got to come back next week (laughs) because just a little sneak peek, this incident will begin a blood feud that will lead to more and more conflict. And finally, the division between the nations that's so needed for Israel to survive as God's people. So that God's people don't lose their God, even though they've walked away from him. Hey, God uses his people's misdirection to steer them, to lead them, to lead us in his direction. So a few takeaways from this interesting story. First, we need to beware of our vulnerability and the temptation of dissolving into the world around us. The main problem in this story and in the book of Judges is that they did what was right in their own eyes, and what was right was shaped by the nations around them rather than by God and His Word. Okay, they 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 were supposed to be light in darkness, but instead of being a distinct people, light in darkness, Israel became just like the darkness. They didn't know how to answer this question: Do you see yourself primarily as Jews? you see yourself as God's people? Do you see yourself primarily as Jews who happen to live in the land of Canaan? Or do you see yourself primarily as Canaanites who just happen to be Jewish? Canaanites with a Jewish history and ethnicity. Getting this answer wrong messes up everything compromise and political union between the people of God and a pagan nation is impossible it won't work it won't ever work because they're living in two fundamentally fundamentally different stories with two very different gods and two very radically different missions now none of us have to resist the Philistine culture today but what culture do we have to resist Does your view of money and success and sex look more like the world views it or how God views them? We've talked about these things in the previous months. Here's one that hits home today on on the 4th of July. How do you view celebrating the 4th of July? Should Christians be celebrating the 4th of July any different than non-Christians? Should we ignore all of the grace we've been given, just protest against the place God's given us to live in with all its brokenness? Or is today just a day to promote the greatness of America, to see the grace we've been given here and promote the USA as the best place ever On the planet Earth. What are we to do today on the 4th of July? This question should help us. Do you see yourself primarily as a Christian who happens to live in America? Or do you see yourself more as an American who happens to be a Christian? Where's your fundamental identity on the 4th of July? Is your answer any different than Samson's or his people's? It needs to be. Church, listen, God's people are to be distinct from all nations. Our mission is not to promote America, but to promote our God in America for the good of America. Our mission isn't to protest against our nation in and of itself, but to protest the idols that hold so many people captive. The best way we can seek America's welfare is not to become just like it. The best way to seek its welfare is by being in this place and distinct from this place. Church, on this July 4th, know this. Hear me. We're called to love our country. This certainly means to appreciate it, not as our chief identity, but as a gift of God's grace. And it certainly also means to see brokenness in it. To see its wildly misdirected sexual ethic. To see the rampant evil practice of abortion in our land. To see... It's obsession with materialism and consumerism to see its oppression, to see the various forms of oppression in our land that hurt people. And right there, seek to be redemptive agents, spreading God's goodness and light where it's cracked and broken. And in the same manner of our God, okay, with loving prophetic words and sacrificial prophetic words service church God's mission is not that we would become more American to our core but that we become more godly in America that we become more like him living in America okay his goal is not for us to bleed red white and blue but for us to bleed just red representing him for the sake of our neighbors who happen to be Americans and the many who are non-Americans among us, to love them like he loves us. Okay, please hear me again. We're called to love America, not by protesting it, also not by promoting it, but by being prophetic in it, and for it, we're called to love America. But it, it's not really any different than the way we're called to love our spouses or our children. Okay, the way we love our spouse or children most is by loving them less than we love Jesus. Okay, in the same way, we're called to love America most by loving her less than our God. We're called to love America by staying distinctly His people. Takeaway number two. This will be shorter. Some of us are still asking, why does God use people like Samson to accomplish his purposes? I thought he used people who make good choices. Well, here's the thing. If God only used good people making good choices, he wouldn't be operating by grace. If he only use good people using you making good choices'd he'd be he 'd be responding to our good works, which would mean he would have to wait on us to help him save us now that, that might sound really good to you if you see yourself as a pretty good person who makes pretty good choices, but if that 's you you 're missing the whole point of the story in the book of Judges. Judges is above all a book about grace and undeserved mercy. That's what the entire Bible is about. The Bible is not a story of heroes. It's a story of a hero. One Savior who saves us by grace alone. That's why when we read our Bibles, we should always identify with the people who need saving more than the heroes. Our good choices, our good behavior could never save us. But this story is good news because it declares God doesn't wait on us. He always takes the initiative to save us. He, he gives grace. We need grace. So we receive grace celebrating the fact that not even our own sin or our bad choices will stop him from saving us or from using us. Okay, Final point. If you've suffered at the hands of an impulsive, selfish man or woman like Samson, this all might be very hard to swallow. This story continues the brutality found in the book of Judges. And the fact that a good God uses such brutality is challenging. Dale Ralph Davis says God doesn't deliver his people only through a sterile environment. His deliverances are not perfumed. God using what he hates to accomplish what he loves doesn't always feel or or smell like good news because his savings, not done in a sterile environment. It's not perfumed. But here's some counsel from this chapter. Let's be sure not to put God... In a box and tell him what he can or cannot do or what he shouldn't do. Let's not judge him by what seems right in our own eyes. Okay, not only because he's infinitely more wise and good and we're so limited, but also because God doesn't just use the brutality he hates on others to accomplish what he loves, he's used it on himself. God the Father sent his dearly loved son Jesus to receive the most brutal act. Of history. Jesus, the innocent God man who always did what was right in his Father's eyes, was stripped of his outer and his under garments. He was scorched and beaten and nailed to a cross naked, humiliated as a public display. Why? To send us in his direction to save me, to save you from what we really deserve. You see, he hates brutality, but he loves us so much that he took the worst brutality of misdirected evil men on himself so we wouldn't have to, and he redirected it for our good to win us back as his people so that we would be a people right now who hate brutality too and push back against it in this world however we can, even now. He's seeking those opportunities through us to push back against brutality. And He empowers us with His Holy Spirit. Okay, if you need a sterile salvation, you'll reject the cross because the cross is not perfumed. But if we get this, that our God uses what He hates to accomplish what he loves. If we we see this, we'll be able to embrace the reality that what we don't know or understand today in the end may prove to be our biggest comfort. He uses evil people's misdirection like the cosmic murder of his own son on a cross to send us in his direction to demonstrate his own love for us in this while we were still sinners Christ died for us let's pray thank you for listening to this sermon from grace church to receive future messages Father, subscribe to the podcast on itunes thank you that you love or us listen like online this. by visiting our website at they'll gracechurchfrisco.org even what's bad in us even our sin even our bad choices We'll use our misdirection lord